Welcome to some very famous people you've never really heard of. Bite-sized biographies of the famous, the infamous, and the quirky in less than an hour. My name is Philip D. Gibbons, and there is more information about me, this podcast, and a bibliography at someveryfamouspeople.com. There are also photographs of many of the individuals mentioned in this podcast. At the conclusion of Part 1 of this presentation, there will be additional suggestions concerning further information about today's subject, World War II American Espionage Agent Virginia Hall. There will also be an announcement concerning my novel. Is that your final answer? Now let's get started with our story about Virginia Hall. In November of 1942, the Allies commenced Operation Torch, a massive attack upon Vichy French positions in the North African colonies of Algeria and Morocco. This invasion was the initial offensive in the European theater, an attempt to gain a strategic position with an intent to lessen the influence of the pro-German Vichy French forces that occupied this northern African region. Eventually, this invasion helped vanquish the Africa Corps in 1943 and became the launching point of subsequent attacks on Sicily and Italy itself. Many of the Vichy French in Africa either immediately renounced their allegiance to Nazi Germany or were replaced by individuals intent on liberating France. Although successful, this invasion prompted an immediate response from the German military. Already unhappy with the sovereignty of the Vichy French in a large portion of the country, Adolf Hitler initiated total occupation of this formerly autonomous region and decreed that France was completely under Nazi authority. Although Vichy officials frequently responded brutally towards resistance activities and collaborated in deportations of French slave labor, and imprisonment of anyone aiding the resistance, British cells of the SOE, the Special Operations Executive, previously infiltrated numerous agents who instigated acts of espionage and sabotage throughout France. The Gestapo and the Abwehr, German military intelligence, enthusiastically blanketed the newly occupied territory, intent on eradicating this element. One of these occupiers, Klaus Barbie, was named the head of the Gestapo in the French city of Lyon, a hotbed of resistance activity. Even before his arrival, Barbie had received intelligence about an espionage agent described as, quote, the most dangerous of all Allied spies, unquote. Not only was this mysterious operative effective, even more remarkably, she was an American who somehow managed to escape detection for several years. Although Klaus Barbie's reign of terror in Lyon would place him at the top of the list of the world's most notorious war criminals, he was never successful in capturing his elusive adversary. This woman, Virginia Hall, was savvy enough to anticipate the occupation of Vichy, France, and only days before the Germans stormed into the region, she made a daring escape by foot 
over 50 miles of the snowy, rugged Pyrenees Mountains. In Virginia's case, it actually was one foot, her other limb having been amputated at the knee after a hunting accident in her youth. But Virginia Hall's exploits in France were far from over, and she eventually returned to the continent as one of the first recruits of the famed American OSS, becoming the most decorated civilian female of World War II. Initially, Virginia Hall wanted to merely serve the American government as a member of the State Department. Born on April 6, 1906, in Baltimore, Maryland, she was the daughter of Barbara and Edwin Lee Hall. Mr. Hall was a wealthy real estate investor who could afford to educate his daughter at Radcliffe and Barnard College. Even at a young age, Virginia demonstrated an independence and adventurous spirit by deciding to travel to Paris alone and finish her education at the Sorbonne. Intent on government service, in 1929, she returned to graduate school at American University in Washington, D.C., and began the process of trying to land a consular job with the State Department. It took two years to finally acquire a position as a clerk at the American Embassy in Warsaw. Virginia initially thrived in her new post and was thrilled to be working for the State Department, but an unhappy love affair prompted her in 1933 to request a transfer to any other available position in Europe. This request was granted, and in April 1933, she left Warsaw for a posting in Smyrna, Turkey. This location, now known as Izmir, is the third largest city in the country, and it was decidedly different from Poland. Virginia immersed herself in her work, but also found time to socialize with her co-workers and even went hunting and horseback riding whenever she got the opportunity. Having spent time on her parents' 110-acre farm in rural Maryland, she learned how to handle a gun. On Friday, December 8, 1933, these seemingly carefree pursuits precipitated an incident that transformed both Virginia's life and career. Accompanied by four acquaintances from the consulate and having packed a picnic lunch, Virginia was about 15 miles outside of the city, tramping through a bog in search of snipe. Eventually, the group came to a dilapidated wire fence, and as Virginia attempted to climb over this impediment, she slipped. Her 12-gauge shotgun, tucked under her arm while she climbed over the fence, accidentally discharged. Pointing towards the ground, the force of the blast impacted her left foot, which was terribly mangled and bled profusely. She survived due to the quick work of her associates, who fashioned a makeshift tourniquet and a stretcher that got her to their automobile and to a hospital back in the city in less than an hour. The head of the Istanbul American Hospital was quickly summoned, and while Virginia was still unconscious, the decision was made to amputate her foot. It was not until the end of February 1934 that Virginia returned to the United States. Luckily, gangrene had not further necessitated additional amputation above the knee, but she would need a prosthetic device specially made for her in America. On a more pleasant note, she convalesced at her family home, the property known as Boxhorn Farm. It would take six months of adapting to her new prosthesis before Virginia notified the State Department that she was ready to return to work, preferably in Spain, Estonia, or Peru. None of those posts were available, but by December she was headed back to the American consulate in Venice, Italy. 
Venice was no obscure diplomatic backwater. Virginia was exposed to a newly refurbished, opulent consulate befitting a nation with America's prestige. Italy in the mid-30s was a volatile political and social environment, allowing her a front-row seat for the emergence of fascism that eventually plunged the continent into chaos. An educated, intelligent individual, Virginia was quite vocal about her concern over these developments in Italy and elsewhere. Unfortunately, this outspoken demeanor, despite her junior status, as well as her gender, alienated some of the senior diplomats within the consulate. Her evaluations were ambivalent at best and may have prompted a specific communication concerning her attempts to complete her exams to attain entrance to the foreign service. A letter from the Assistant Secretary of State to the Consul General stated that Virginia was proscribed from an appointment in the Foreign Service by a regulation that prohibited amputees. Although disappointed by this development, Virginia did not immediately give up on her ambition. Although her father had died a few years earlier, her influential family attempted to exert influence through various well-connected D.C. contacts. Despite an administration headed by wheelchair-bound Franklin D. Roosevelt, these appeals went nowhere. No longer enthusiastic about the clerical tasks performed by a junior consular staff member, Virginia attempted to relieve her boredom by transferring to a posting in Tallinn, Estonia. But when it was clear that her diplomatic career was at a dead end and advancement would not happen, Hall reluctantly resigned in mid-1939. Her difficulty in accessing employment in the Foreign Service was typical. During this time period, only six of 1,500 career Foreign Service officials were females. The only upside of Virginia's disappointing professional quest was her ability to delay her subsidized return to the U.S. on the government's dime. At age 33, she decided to head to Paris to enjoy one of the cultural centers of Europe while she figured out how to proceed professionally. However, by mid-1939, a palpable tension was evident throughout the West, Germany having rearmed and belligerently occupied Austria and Czechoslovakia, the rhetoric of Adolf Hitler indicating that further hostilities were a distinct possibility. Still, the people of France, their border with Germany defended by the seemingly impregnable Maginot Line, found it hard to believe that the German government might wish to relive the slaughter of the First World War. Nevertheless, on September 1, 1939, Nazi Germany launched an invasion of Poland, a provocative incursion that prompted a declaration of war from both France and Great Britain. Typically, idealistic Virginia responded by enlisting in one of the entities that allowed female participation in a quasi-military support role. She and a friend, Claire de la Tour, joined the service sanitaire de l'armée, and within weeks they were commissioned as ambulance drivers for a war that all concerned believed would be a short conflict. The two women, like the rest of the French military effort, spent the winter of 1939 wondering what Hitler's next move might be. Assigned to the vicinity of the Maginot Line, both Virginia and Claire became involved in transporting numerous wounded from the vicinity as the intensity of combat increased in the early spring of 1940. Her ambulance was a glorified Citroën de Chavot, barely large enough to contain a couple of stretcher-bound wounded.
Initially, after the German blitzkrieg of Poland, Hitler hinted that he was satisfied with expanding Germany's eastern border and there was no need for further hostilities. But a change in the British government and an ancient French animosity toward any potential German advancement ensured that Nazi Germany would not get to officially regroup before its inevitable Western invasion. Despite the occasional skirmish that necessitated Virginia's involvement, German aggression was minimal until a late winter invasion of Denmark and Norway signaled continued German attacks. On May 10, 1940, Germany began a Western invasion that bypassed the French border and the Maginot Line and instead attempted a flanking maneuver through Belgium and the Netherlands. Unlike World War I, which consisted of trench warfare, stalemate, and futility, German panzers quickly subdued the Low Countries and overran a tactically outmaneuvered combined French and British defense. By June 14th, German troops were marching down the boulevards of Paris. Only a miraculous amphibious coastal withdrawal of British military and those wishing to continue the struggle on the geographic boundary of the English Channel prevented Germany from total victory. In a society as ancient as France, there were bound to be some bleak moments, and the country now veered into one of its darkest periods. While some of the French military fled to Great Britain and vowed to continue the fight under General Charles de Gaulle, the French government of Paul Reynaud resigned rather than deal with the hopeless military situation, replaced by the figurehead Philippe Pétain. Pétain was viewed as the country's savior during World War I, but at 83 years of age, he was nothing more than a German puppet. His first act upon assuming control of the French government was to request an armistice, which was officially signed on June 22, 1940. Germany occupied 60% of the country, including all territory bordering the Atlantic Ocean and the English Channel. Pétain was allowed to select the site of his administrative capital, and he settled on the small southern French tourist destination of Vichy. A political conservative, Pétain opposed what he considered the excesses of French Republican democracy. What was left of the French government voted to abolish the French Republic and grant Pétain virtually dictatorial powers. Like all elements of the French military, Virginia's ambulance unit was decommissioned, the stunningly brief conflict was also quite costly, with over 200,000 French casualties, and Virginia was continually transporting soldiers with harrowing injuries, many of whom did not survive. In the final days of the invasion, she and her fellow ambulance driver, Claire, were reduced to begging for food and fuel from civilians they encountered in their travels. With few other options, Virginia decided to stick with Claire and head to her family home in the vicinity of Toulouse, located in the Vichy sector. Unable to even acquire additional fuel for their vehicles, they were reduced to reaching Claire's house by bicycle and ultimately by the horse-drawn wagon of a farmer headed in the same direction. Filthy and exhausted, they made it to the small town of Cahors to the butcher shop run by Claire's family who lived in an apartment above the business. The momentary opportunity to clean up and eat some home-cooked meals was replaced by the harsh reality of foreign occupation. Although the Germans allowed French police and administration to supervise matters within Vichy, it soon became clear that many in authority were also quite willing to collaborate and oppress their own countrymen. 
Anti-Semitism also contributed to the persecution of Jews and other refugees who poured into France, attempting to stay one step ahead of the Nazi invasion. One of Patan's ministers, Pierre Laval, exploited the general's incipient senility by filling the vacuum at the head of the Vichy government. Convinced that Nazi Germany would win World War II, Laval decided to ingratiate himself with the Nazis by constructing a harsh and repressive regime. French authorities conscripted French citizens by the millions for German slave labor and eventually cooperated with the roundup of Jews for transport to the death camps of Poland. Learning that the numerous wounded still required ambulance service, Virginia decided to briefly continue working as a driver in the vicinity of Paris, ultimately concluding that she should leave France and relocate to Great Britain. The de la Tours, who were Jewish, were about to leave Cahors for the more remote countryside, and Virginia's first-hand observation of life under the Nazis hardened her determination to contribute to resisting this form of tyranny. As an American neutral, she also had the right to leave France, which she did, crossing the border into Spain, and then proceeding to Britain by ship. At the Spanish border, a friendly individual noticed her American passport and struck up a conversation. Virginia was wary, but this gentleman, named George Bellows, was persistent, ultimately giving her the name of a friend in London who he thought could help her professionally. He also suggested that she inform the American embassy of her presence and her recent experience in France. Based on his British accent, Virginia decided that he was probably a British agent of some kind, but she still pocketed the phone number of his London friend. When she arrived in Britain on September 1st, Virginia did report to the American embassy, but she was actually intent on nothing more than a low-level job to tide her over until she received official passage back to the States. What little communication she provided her mother clearly indicated that she already had experienced dangerous wartime situations, and she felt guilty about contributing to her sole surviving parent's anxiety about her future. The embassy did hire her as a clerk, but they declined her request for passage home, stating that she had missed the official deadline for a government-sponsored return. Out of desperation and unable to find any other way to get to the States, she decided to phone the contact recommended by George Bellows. This individual turned out to be Nicholas Boddington, a former journalist, but a current high-level officer of the Special Operations Executive, the newly created espionage unit charged with infiltrating agents into Nazi-occupied Europe, especially France. After Boddington listened to Virginia recounting tales of her experiences, he realized that she possessed the perfect identity to travel back to Vichy as one of the first on-the-ground members of the SOE. Her American citizenship allowed her both access and cover to move relatively freely within French territory. By April 1, 1941, Virginia had once again resigned from the State Department and become a clandestine member of the SOE. Although its directors were ambitious, thus far they had failed to successfully infiltrate a single agent into Europe. But after receiving a visa from the American government and a journalistic cover from the New York Post, in September of 1941, Virginia Hall re-entered Vichy, France, not by parachute or a stealthy naval vessel, but by the perfectly legal access of a correspondent for one of America's oldest and largest newspapers. 
She legally registered with the local authorities, alluding to already filed journalism, and began cultivating contacts, both official and unofficial, attempting to build her identity as a journalist and reporter. One individual who did not respond favorably was the American ambassador to Vichy, France, William Leahy, who strictly adhered to the policy of American isolationism. Observing Virginia's ability to ingratiate herself with a wide-ranging group of diplomats, Vichy officials, and high-profile members of the community, Leahy correctly theorized that Hall was working for British intelligence. He strictly forbade his staff from engaging in espionage of any kind, not wanting to offend the Patan government, who adamantly labeled members of the Free French or resistance to the German occupation as traitors to the state. Hey, it's finally here. Is that your final answer? The new novel by Philip D. Gibbons. A cross between office space and sex in the city from a male perspective. Is that your final answer? Is the hilarious and poignant account of one man's search for love and reason in a cold and irrational world. You can pre-order it at the Kindle store for $2.99. That's cheaper than a corporate cup of coffee and with only half of the indigestion. Or you can buy the paperback at Amazon. Is that your final answer? Get it today. And in the meantime, let's return to our story about Virginia Hall. Virginia Hall soon decided to relocate to Lyon a much larger city than the small pond of Vichy, where everyone knew your name. A solid hour away from the seat of the French government, she would also escape the scrutiny of the American ambassador. Lyon was more likely to provide contacts with French citizens opposed to both Vichy and the German occupation. The city was so crowded with refugees that Virginia briefly had to billet in a convent, a fortuitous occurrence, which provided her with under-the-radar interaction and valuable contacts, information, as well as an emergency refuge. Eventually, she was able to access a hotel room in the city center, closer to the potential network of like-minded citizens, diplomats, and journalists she hoped to cultivate. At the American consulate, she was able to locate an official who was politically sympathetic and willing to smuggle messages to another like-minded employee at the American embassy in Switzerland, and from there on to the SOE in Britain. Most importantly, this contact was also willing to smuggle envelopes containing money and messages back to Virginia. In the fall of 1941, the SOE began to aggressively parachute agents into southern France, who were initially successful in escaping detection. But the capture of one of these agents, who stupidly retained the written address of a safe house location in Marseille, led to a disaster in which a planned rendezvous at this location of all SOE agents and their local contacts was discovered in advance by Vichy authorities. As these individuals approached this secluded residence, they were arrested one by one by the Vichy French version of the Gestapo, known as the Sorite. 
Intimidation and torture quickly led to the apprehension of the entire operation in the region. Luckily, Virginia's propensity for extreme caution led her to decline any invitations to this conclave, and she also protected herself by only recruiting individuals after careful interaction. She also only revealed her location to a tiny circle of confidants. One of these was an operator of Lyon's most prominent brothel, Germaine Guerin, whose customers included high-level members of both the German military, Vichy government, and Lyon's municipal government. Germaine's modest-looking home concealed an interior stuffed with valuable artwork and tapestries and a fortune in gold coins. Despite her profession, Guerin was an ardent French patriot and courageous individual who was already aiding fugitives and Jews en route to Spain and providing a temporary safe house for those involved in the resistance. Many of Guerin's employees aided by passing on information gleaned from their customers who were plied with alcohol during their visits and eager to impress their female companions with vital intelligence. It was through Germain that Virginia was introduced to several locals who also were aiding in smuggling any RAF pilots shot down in southern France to safety in Spain. After the roundup of most of the SOE operatives in Marseille, Virginia was virtually the only intelligence asset left in the country. She continued to construct a vast network of informants that even included members of the Vichy government and secret police. Despite her success, life in occupied France in December of 1941 was difficult. The winter weather, lack of comfortable transportation, clothing, and food making mere survival a daily chore. Even soap and hot water were luxuries. It was Virginia who successfully informed the SOE of the fate of the agents recently sent to southern France. Her handlers in London were afraid that her residence at the Grand Nouvelle Hotel was so well known within the underground that she needed to relocate to a less conspicuous home, in this case a modest apartment. As the winter of early 1942 ebbed, Virginia focused on the 12 SOE agents who had now languished in prison for six months. Initially kept at a severe prison at Perigot, the dozen men were eventually moved to Mauzac internment camp, an open-air facility that provided a much better opportunity for escape. Virginia Hall herself could not be seen in even the vicinity of this location, but she was fortunate in interacting with Gabby Block, the wife of a former deputy in the French government who was confined at Mauzac. Gabby actually proactively sought out Virginia Hall at the Grand Nouvelle, knowing that any subsequent trial of her husband would result in at least severe confinement, if not execution, outright. Through Gabby, Hall sent various secreted escape implements and provisions into the prison. She also had Gabby, who frequently traveled to Malzac, hang out in the same hotel bar where some of the guards drank and socialized. Not particularly enthusiastic or loyal, these guards were easily compromised with bribes to look the other way in the event of an escape attempt. A key was constructed from the sardine cans that Gabby Block regularly included with the food parcels she provided. This key was eventually fitted to handle the lock that was placed on the hut containing the prisoners while they slept. Meanwhile, Virginia Hall set about finding safe houses in the immediate vicinity of the camp. The plan eventually called for all 12 men to circumvent two tall barbed wire fences and escape via a waiting truck. Signaled by a compromised prison official, the prisoners began their escape at 3 o'clock in the morning. 
quickly getting all 12 men over the fences and into the truck. Adding to the confusion, one of the remaining prisoners relocked the door and threw away the key, so that the next morning the camp's leadership had no idea how the escape was pulled off. With her husband participating in the escape, Gabby Block was briefly detained, but with an airtight alibi, she was eventually released. Although a determined manhunt by both Vichy and German elements combed a 100-mile area surrounding Mauzak, the men hid for two weeks in an abandoned barn deep within a secluded forest. By then, rumors originating with the underground that an RAF bomber had successfully extricated the escapees dampened any attempts at recapture. All 12 then painstakingly evaded detection, first by making it to Lyon, where Virginia coordinated their transit through her various safe houses and then to the Spanish border. Although some of the fugitives were apprehended in Spain, the British government was able to extricate them, pulling off one of the most impressive prison breaks of World War II. Many of the SOE operatives eventually returned to France to aid the resistance and coordinate with the Allied invasion of Normandy. Despite such successes, the extreme danger of what Virginia was involved in was underlined by the German response. The Nazi government demanded official paperwork for 500 additional Gestapo and Abwehr operatives and the beginning of complete police authority, ignoring the previous policy of working only in conjunction with Vichy authorities. Incidents of sabotage against rail lines, factories, and power plants were on the rise indicating that the resistance was increasing its organization and determination. Lyon was considered a hotbed of anti-Nazi activity, and attempts to infiltrate Virginia's extensive network began in earnest. In early August of 1942, a new courier appeared at the offices of John Rousset, the French doctor who was a link in the chain that communicated with resistance members in Paris. Because he came with microfiche that was sure to contain valuable intelligence, knew the passwords and identifiers associated with other couriers from his Parisian network, and was dressed in the robes of a priest, he was initially accepted as genuine. He also knew one of Virginia Hall's pseudonyms, Marie Monat, and he asked for the money that she typically doled out to support activities throughout France. Because he had not told anyone of his arrival, he was informed that the money was not available presently, but he could wait until it could be provided. Instead, he replied that he would return in a week. It was three weeks before he showed up again, but this time he was insistent that he meet with Marie personally. Summoned to the doctor's office from her nearby location, Virginia was immediately put off by the newcomer's German-accented French and his incessant demands for a wireless radio. Although he brought a personal letter of introduction from the previous courier, and his arrival coincided with this individual's request to be replaced, Virginia remained wary of the man who introduced himself as the Abbe Robert Alesh. One of the reasons that Virginia Hall had successfully evaded capture for 18 months was her extreme caution and uncanny ability to sense imminent danger in both people and situations. Virginia's suspicions about Alesh only increased when she heard of the arrest of several of her Paris connections by the Gestapo. Alesh mentioned nothing about this, and when he next visited in September, she confronted him. He attempted to reassure her, and the intelligence materials concerning troop movements and coastal defenses seemed to be of the highest quality. Unfortunately, Virginia's initial suspicions about Alesh proved accurate. 
a native Alsatian, ambitious and unable to advance within the church bureaucracy at the pace he wanted, he offered himself up as a double agent for the Abwehr, preaching anti-Nazi diatribes from the pulpit, but secretly infiltrating the Parisian resistance network until the entire group was rolled up by the Gestapo. The previous courier and prominent member of this group, Jacques Legrand, was arrested, tortured, and then sent off to Mauthausen concentration camp where he perished in 1944. The vast sums given to Alesh by Virginia were used to support his sybaritic lifestyle, which included consorting with two different mistresses. For the moment, the Abwehr was content not to aggressively attempt to apprehend Marie, as it was believed that Alesh would eventually learn all about her Lyon contacts, and she was also a valuable vehicle to spread disinformation back to London. But, following the arrest of many of her contacts in both Marseille and Paris, Virginia again sensed that she was in great danger. She notified her handlers in London that she needed to leave France. She also relocated to one of Germaine Guerin's apartments as her flat was becoming notorious. On November 7, 1942, her situation turned from dangerous to critical when she received word that Operation Torch, the Allied invasion of North Africa, was underway. A Nazi swarm of Vichy France was imminent, and telling none of her contacts where she was headed, at 11 p.m., she caught the last train to Perpignan, the French city closest to the Spanish border. Undoubtedly disguised, she made it past checkpoints while changing trains in Marseille and arrived safely intent on accessing some of the individuals who previously helped her smuggle fugitives over the Pyrenees. Only now they needed to guide her. Thank you for listening to part one of this podcast about Virginia Hall. Much of the information for this podcast came from the books A Woman of No Importance by Sonia Purnell and The Wolves at the Door, The True Story of America's Greatest Female Spy by Judith Pearson. There are also additional photographs, bibliographical and musical information at someveryfamouspeople.com. If you have enjoyed this presentation, please like us at our Facebook page, Some Very Famous People, and follow us on Twitter at Philip D. Gibbons. Also rate us on iTunes, and if you have the time, leave a brief review. A link is provided at the website. <laughs>